Welcome back to Booker's House of Learning. Today we're going to be looking at the Empire of Japan and its imperialist policies. So what we want to do is start looking at what was the motivating catalyst or cause for Japan expanding their empire. We first got to look at their modernization process. One of the main motivating factors for Japan was that they saw what was happening to China in the mid-19th century. That really was a case study for Japan. Basically, China is just being infiltrated by outside Western influences. And for China, they didn't modernize. They didn't see the necessity to modernize. But when Matthew C. Perry of the United States Navy shows up on the shores of Japan in 1853, uh, America kind of forces Japan to open their borders. Now, Japan had been isolated for 200 years, but the West, the United States, they are beginning to encroach on the Asian continent because we need those new markets. And so Japan, they're going to open their borders and they understand that they need to modernize. If not, they're going to be the next China. So we have Emperor Maijai. He's going to come into power um, in the later part of the 19th century, and he's going to start instituting the Maijai Restoration. The governing document is going to be known as the Charter Oath, and this drastically changes Japan from an agrarian society to a full-fledged modernized industrialized nation that's going to have a formidable military. Some of the things that the Charter Oath does is it brings democratic principles to Japan. Japan is going to eventually adopt a constitution. Japan is going to completely reform its education system. It's going to industrialize. There are going to actually be Japanese representatives that go to factories in Paris, in France, in the United States to see how the factory system works, and they're going to bring that back to Japan. The other thing that's going to happen for the Japanese economy is it's going to modernize. Railroads, telegraphs are all going to be uh, built on the island. And what this is going to do is going to help Japan come into the 19th, 20th century with modern technology. The other thing is that a currency system is going to be implemented. This is going to help the centralized government of Japan get taxes. What are we going to do with those taxes? We're going to invest them into military, naval development, modernization. This is going to just catapult Japan. Japan over a 30, 40 year time span into a new modern nation. The last part that's really going to help Japan become a empire is that military service is going to be required. So all young males are going to be conscripted, which means they have to serve in the military for a period of time. This is going to allow Japan to be ready for action whenever they need to militarily. There's going to be a few things at play here. Japan, they've industrialized, they have a military ready to go, and because they're an island, they're going to need a lot of natural resources that they just simply can't sustain themselves. So they're going to have to expand their sphere of influence beyond their borders, and China, Korea, those are going to be great starting points. So the first event that Japan is going to get involved in is the First Sino-Japanese War. 
This takes place in 1894 to 1895. Both countries, China and Japan, want to have control over the Korean Peninsula. Japan needs it for natural resources and they want, they want to establish a sphere of influence. In China, they kind of are just trying to maintain their status. They want to maintain their sphere of influence. Japan is going to easily win this war because they're modernized and militaristically they're just far superior. This shows that Japan's technology and their advancement is going to help support their goal of uh, maintaining their industrialization and also going beyond their borders. What it also shows for China is that they're beginning to slip as the power in Asia. Now, the Treaty of Shimonoseki is what ends the first Sino-Japanese War. What's going to happen is, is that Japan is going to be recognized as the victor. However, the West is going to come in and they're going to shortcut Japan. And here's how. France, Russia, and Germany are all going to agree that Russia should have Port Arthur. Now, these three countries aren't even involved in this conflict, but what's happening is, is Russia is also vying for a sphere of influence in this region of the world. In Russia, they need a warm water port because they're a big giant popsicle for most of the year. So, France and Germany agree that Russia should have Port Arthur, even though Japan was the winner and they were supposed to get Port Arthur. Now, why is France and Germany, why are they playing into Russia? Well, both of them, France and Germany, are kind of looking for Russian interests to go on, quote unquote, their side. Um, Germany wants Russia to kind of just be a peace, stay out of the way, and France is hoping for a potential alliance further down the road. So at the end of the day, the Treaty of Shimonoseki grants Japan a sphere of influence over the peninsula of Korea. However, Port Arthur is going to go to Russia. We're going to stay tuned here because that action is eventually going to lead to the Russo-Japanese War. But before we can get to the Russo-Japanese War, we got to talk about the Boxer Rebellion. Because China is just being bombarded by international influences, the Chinese citizens are wanting to regain control of their country. And so there is an underground group that the West is going to refer to as the Boxers or the Righteous Fist. This group is wanting to kick out all of the Western influences. What's interesting here is the Chinese government secretly supports the action of the boxers, but for a period of time is telling the international community, oh, this is horrible, we're gonna try and stop it. But eventually the Chinese government is going to publicly acknowledge that they support the actions of the boxers because they also want their country to have its sovereignty. They don't want all of these foreigners continuing to take advantage of China. So the goal is that the international community is going to collectively work together to squash the Boxer Rebellion. So Britain, France, Germany, Japan, Russia, the United States, they all send troops over to China to you know, stop the revolt of the Boxers. 
Japan is going to be a really important component here because they do send the majority of the troops. They're able to help out the International Brigade, stop the Boxer Rebellion, and it really solidifies that China is decreasing in power. Japan is a reliable ally potentially for the West, and they're just proving that their modernization within their military is increasing their capabilities. Now, teaming up with the West, Japan is really going to get some international recognition here through the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902. Britain, they want a defensive uh, relationship between Japan and Britain, so Japan can help protect Britain's interests over in Asia. For Japan, this is going to be really helpful for them because it's going to legitimize them. And if Japan ever gets into a war with Russia, per se, dot, 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 stay tuned, then this is going to really help them out. Britain is going to share some Navy technology with Japan. This is going to exponentially help out the Japanese modernize their Navy further. What it shows us with Britain is that they're kind of getting desperate because they are no longer able to stay within splendid isolationism. But no one in Europe is really wanting to team up with Britain right now because of like the Boers War and um, other countries just viewing Britain as increasingly nationalistic. But for Japan, this is a win-win for them. What this is going to do is really kind of um, encourage them to kind of rectify the Treaty of Shimonoseki. Japan is feeling confident they have an alliance with Britain, and that's going to lead us to the Russo-Japanese War. Both Japan and Russia had an interest in Manchuria. Russia, after the Boxer Rebellion, they kept a lot of troops along the border with Korea and China, and Japan is starting to get a little nervous because Russia is beginning to increase troops, the Trans-Siberian Railroad is starting to get closer to the peninsula of Korea, and Japan wants them to back off. Russia doesn't feel like they have to back off. So what Japan is going to do is they're going to do a surprise attack at Port Arthur and then declare war on Russia. This is a bold move because an eastern country like Japan has now just attacked a western nation. How is this going to end? Well, because of that Anglo-Japanese alliance, Britain is going to not allow Russia to use the Suez Canal, which could have greatly helped the Russian fleet get there. Japan had totally annihilated the Russian fleet at Port Arthur, but Russia accidentally blew up a British fishing boat that they thought was going to attack the Russian fleet. Well, between the Anglo-Japanese alliance and Russia really messing up and blowing up a British fishing boat, Britain is like, nope, you can't use the Suez Canal. This is going to put Russia at a huge disadvantage. But we also have to acknowledge that Japan is a, you know, reliable, consistent, victorious navy. Their army has proven themselves before, and Japan is going to prove themselves here in the Russo-Japanese War. The Treaty of Portsmouth is going to end the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, Russia is going to be humiliated in this defeat, and Japan is going to really assert their power. This is going to be the first time that an Eastern nation had beaten a Western nation, and this is going to start putting Japan on the international radar of like, wow, this is a really strong country.
that strength of continuous military victories and the Anglo-Japanese alliance is going to play out in World War I. Japan is going to be a vital ally to Britain, France, and Russia. They're going to provide warships, ammunition, merchant ships that's really going to help sustain the Allies' supply chain while Europe is being blown up by German bombs. Now, militarily, Japan is going to provide anti-submarine missions in the Mediterranean, as well as capture German territories in the Pacific and protecting sea lanes. Japan is also going to be a little opportunistic here in 1915. While the Europeans are being preoccupied with the actual war on the European continent, Japan is going to issue the 21 demands to China. Now, what they want here is that they, they want to expand their sphere of influence. Japan wants control over railroad rights, mining rights, and just have a political sphere of influence over China. This is not going to be supported by the international community, and we're going to see that at the Paris Peace Conference. During those negotiations, Japan is going to have to give up some of those 21 demands. They are going to have uh, a smaller sphere of influence than what they would have wanted out of the 21 demands. They are going to get to keep the railroad rights and the mining rights, but this does show the West keeping Japan in check on what they can and can't do in Asia. Further down the road, this is gonna kind of put a chip on Japan's shoulder. The other thing, though, we want to put in the positive category for Japan is that this is showing that they are becoming a global power. They proved themselves in World War I, and this is just going to heighten their status among the international community. I want to recognize, though, that that power status is going to be short-lived. And here's why. When we're looking at the Paris Peace Conference, the United States is growing more concerned about Japan and its expansion into the Pacific because, well, the United States also has interests in the Pacific, so their spheres of influence are going to start crossing lines. The other thing is, is that Japan had asked for an equity clause to be included in the League of Nations in the Paris Peace Agreement, but that was denied by Britain because if an equity clause was included into an international document, then Britain would have to recognize all of its colonies and all of the citizens within those colonies as equals, and Britain was not prepared to do that. Eventually, that Anglo-Japanese alliance is going to lapse in 1921 because Britain is having to kind of make a choice here. Does Britain want to stay close to Japan or do they want to stay close to the United States? Britain is going to make the choice to align more closely with the United States. And so what we're going to see through the 1920s and 1930s is that Japan is going to get further from the West and that they're going to fall into a military dictatorship and they're eventually going to align themselves with Germany. So that's going to play out in World War II. When we ask ourselves, is Japan a superpower by 1918? The answer to that is, well, they really are a superpower. I mean, any war that they were a part of, they were on the victorious side. When we look at some of the, you know, opponents that they had to go against, say, in the first Sino-Japanese War, China was not this huge 
powerful nation. I mean, it wasn't modernized. So Japan definitely had the upper hand there. China was on the decline. They weren't a strong enemy to necessarily have to go against. We could also make the same argument for the Russo-Japanese War. Russia's empire was kind of on the decline. Their navy was very incapable. We also have to look at the argument of if Britain did not cut off the Suez Canal, would Japan have been able to win? And we would have had to see how that played out. But the other thing is, is that the West definitely kept Japan politically in check. When you look at the Treaty of Shimonoseki at the end of the first Sino-Japanese War, the West intervened to limit what Japan wanted. When you looked at the end of World War I, Japan was kept in check once again. They didn't get all of the 21 demands. We also have to look at the scope of Japan's empire. Japan really did focus um, in the Pacific and on the Asian continent. They were not to the scale of the United States or to Britain. You know, Britain's empire literally was across the globe. The United States, they were in the Caribbean, they were obviously in the continental United States. The United States had a huge sphere of influence over Latin America and in the Pacific. So when you were to compare the empires of Britain, France, the United States, and Japan, Japan really is on the list, but they're not at the top of the list.